Welcome to MediaPost's Brand Insider. I'm your host, Steve Smith, Editorial Director of Events here at MediaPost. Each week, we interview marketing leaders from companies old and new about how they build and evolve their brands on an unpredictable media and culture terrain. In addition to this full audio interview in podcast form, we also publish a companion newsletter with highlights from the Q&A. MediaPost has been covering marketing and media news for over 20 years. You can find the Brand Insider Weekly as well as our daily coverage at MediaPost.com. Now, let's get into it. Mommy, where do baby brands come from? In an environment of D2C entrepreneurship, hyper-connected global markets, and a desperate need to break through the digital clutter, brand launches are coming at us from every imaginable direction and source. But in order to cut through the white noise of current marketing, new brands often find it most effective to connect with pre-existing celebrity. But can you actually systematize the creation of brands that are married to star power or to cultural memes? Caravan seems to be an interesting attempt to do just that. It has already launched brands like Fit52, a wellness platform aligned with Carrie Underwood, Yummers, a pet food mix-in tied to two of the stars of the reality series Queer Eye, and Love Nala, a cat treats and supplements brand inspired by Instagram's most popular cat, Nala. And the company's co-founder, Leonard Brody, has a history of developing celeb-aligned brands. At Caravan, he's also worked with Tom Hanks to develop the Hanks 101 trivia app. Caravan, not surprisingly, is partially backed by talent powerhouse CAA. And Leonard is executive chairman of Caravan. He's been a prolific VC involved in many startups, led the innovation and digital group at the sports and entertainment juggernaut Anschutz, and even has a couple of Emmy nominations under his belt. But today, we're going to talk about from-scratch brand building. Leonard, welcome. Hi, nice to meet you. Thanks for having me. Uh, so why don't you, let's get at what the caravan, caravan model is for developing brands and, and how that's different from the traditional brand building that we're used to that comes out of maybe larger corporations or even just the, the normal D2C space. Yeah, so I, I mean, I think it's important to, to, to keep it in the context of what Creative artists and CAA does because mm-hmm. we're a joint venture with CAA, and and I think that that's really important to both the structure of how we build them and the reason why we build them. And if you think about the universe of brand building, there's lots of people who sit inside that food chain. You know, there's everything from licensing endorsement, which are really effective vehicles for building brands. We tend to focus on the actual company building. So I would. Mm-hmm. add a bit of an asterisk that when we're building them we're building companies not just brands so the intention is that these have a longevity a life of their own uh, an exit strategy they they have more venture style economics to them mm-hmm. and so we tend to sit on that side of the fence and i think uh caa had been working in that world for a very long time you know they've been building companies and when you're building them from the ground up it's an incredible amount of hard work and so you can only do so many of them at a time Mm-hmm. And I think the intention behind uh, co-founding Caravan was to take that process, systematize it, create efficiencies so that you can have more swings at bat more frequently. Mm-hmm. And that was the whole model behind why we built Caravan today. Hmm. So, uh, but that's all you have. You say you, you you start by building a company, and but these are companies, some of them in very different segments with very different kinds of supply chains, expertise. I mean, you've got pet treats, uh, pet mix-ins, but then you've also got a wellness brand, you've got a trivia app. Those are very different yeah. companies and very different um, uh, very different economics for each of them. So how does that work? 
Yeah. So we tend to, one of the key differentiators about where we start in the process is we generally don't start with a client. We start with a market opportunity mm-hmm. where we see white space that we think is interesting and compelling. 90% of the time, there are a few exceptions to that. Our focus is twofold. It's one, we're looking for science-backed brands. Mm-hmm. So science-backed opportunities. There's a technological component, some intellectual property, a formulation, a new way of doing things. And then our real focus is on human, pet, and planetary wellness. Those are the three areas that we really like. So if you look at all of these companies, mm-hmm. um, they all share that through line, right? From Hanks 101 to Yummers. You know, Hanks 101 is very much about building your mental muscle and mm-hmm. your knowledge and your education. So they all have different supply chains in some respect. Mm-hmm. But that, that, I would say, is the root DNA between all of them. Mm. And so really when you're manufacturing pet food, there's of course nuance between that and beauty and human food. But once you understand the nuance of those sectors, a lot of the through lines are the same. You know, like it's your real core question that we ask is, why does the world need it? Like, does the world need another pet mix-in brand or do they need a pet food brand? Do they need another shower company? And can we make it 10x better than what's in the market today? And and the talent is a piece of that story, but we're we're starting there. That's the yeah. root. It's like this isn't just oh we should build a makeup brand because Celebrity X wants another makeup brand. It's mm-hmm. we're market opportunity first. Are you, uh, so tell bring us inside a little bit of the research process here. I mean, when I talk to the mate to the major brands at Unilever or P and G or um, even some of the entertainment brands, there is a process whereby they're developing and researching where that white space is. How do you do it? Yeah, I'd probably um, there's similarities and dissimilarities between the two processes. So for us, the advantage of having a co-founding partner like CAA in the process is there's an incredible amount of information and data and opportunity that just flows naturally through mm-hmm. CAA. And then through our own networks, we're very plugged into the industries that we're most active in. And so I would say the ideation starts in a few areas. It starts with the experts that sit on the caravan team. Mm -hmm. It comes from CA clients. It comes from CA itself. It comes from some of our investors. And we take that ideation and we start to drill down on core questions that we care about. Mm -hmm. So there's, and and I would separate those two things out because the questions for somebody like a P&G might be different than they would be for us. Mm -hmm. So for us, we're looking at, for example, the basics, the things I mentioned, like What's the market today? How do buyers behave in that market? Are they looking for a new alternative? Is a certain demographic looking for a new alternative? Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll tell you how we drill down on that in a second. But we're also looking at another side of it, which is how do we exit these companies? Because we are investors. Mm-hmm. And so at the end of the day, P&G might be very happy to have a brand that has a life cycle of 10 years and dies out or mm-hmm. a year and a bit and dies out. We need to understand how us and our investors are actually exiting what the outcome is of that company. So we would look at that. We tend to do a lot of first party research. So we tend to do a lot of surveying, a lot of first party conversations with potential demographics to understand them. And we push pretty hard on that. You know, we'll talk to anywhere from a hundred to a thousand people before we decide we're going to dig into a company. Then, Inside CAA, we have a really incredible group called CAA Intel, 
which has a lot of proprietary data on audience segmentation and consumer interests and consumer insights. So we, we have the great advantage of working with them on that. And then we tend to follow a pretty strict formula and, and we'll start with, does this thing deserve to even be a thing? Mm -hmm. And that is the process we, we talk through. Then we'll put it into what we call the ideation phase where we formally drill down into that for a couple of weeks. If we like the metrics we see, then we move to a project scoping phase. And that phase can be two to six weeks, depending on the complexity of the project. And if we get through that, so we're stage gating it at every step of the way. Mm -hmm. From the from the scoping phase, if we like what we see, and, and that would involve other questions. So think about like customer acquisition cost. Mm -hmm. We would want to know, regardless of if celebrities involved or not, we would want to understand if we're making showers or we're making skincare, what are the general dynamics of the costs of acquisition and retention in that sector? Mm -hmm. So you don't want to you don't want to walk head first into an industry that requires huge customer acquisition costs. You know, you want to be aware of that in the beginning. So we look at that. Once we're out, of, and so how much will this cost to build? How's our supplier network? Do we have enough expertise at retail? Like if retail is part of the channel strategy, do we have enough relationships? So we answer a series of those questions. Then it moves from project scoping into the MVP stage where we're really trying to build as cost-effectively as we can the first iteration of the product. Mm -hmm. And that can take anywhere from three to six months, depending on what it is. I, I will tell you there's a little bit of a difference for us. <clears throat> when we do that MVP phase, we're not just we're not just trying to get it out as quickly as we can. We're trying to do it well. So that may take longer periods of time than it might mm -hmm. other, you know, venture funds or accelerators or stuff. We we're very cautious. And then if all those stages work, we have a minimum <clears throat> viable product and market, we see fit, we're seeing that our assumptions were playing out correctly, then we move to like full launch. Mm -hmm. If at that stage our assumptions are not proving up correctly, we then ask, how do we fix? Where were the assumptions flawed? Is there a pivot here that makes sense? And if there isn't, we shut it down. If there is, we'll pivot in that direction if we believe in it. Now, uh, in all of that description, you didn't mention celebrity once, but celebrity is part of the mix. So where does that celebrity come in in the process and how do you map some of these ideas against the right celebrity? Yeah, so it's a, it's a really important point in our world. We should have a company that we build that is an unbelievable product with or without a celebrity, meaning the, the celebrity is hugely important to the authenticity of the brand and the company, and that match is really important. But you can have terrible products and terrible companies and terrible brands that end up having huge reach in the beginning mm -hmm. because of the celebrity's uh, effective audience, but they right. die out. Very, they have no longevity because the, the, the first part wasn't thought through. Mm -hmm. So we make sure that first part is thought through. Once we've done that, and by the way, inside the process where we're scoping the project, we're obviously keeping a very close eye on who in our universe would be a great authentic match. Who cares about this? Who likes entrepreneurial endeavors? Who would be a great co-founder with us in this project? But it's not all that different 
than when a technology entrepreneur does the same thing and then goes and looks for a great co-founder to be with them. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the difference. We start with the fundamentals of the business and why it should exist. And then while we're doing that, we have an eye on who a great co-founder would be. Once we've made the assumption that this should exist in the world, then we we start more aggressively looking for co-founders because it protects us, it protects the client, and it protects the market from having bad products in it. Mm -hmm. And then what's the what role does the celebrity play both in say the the marketing of the company, but also maybe even the finances of the company? I mean, we're all we're all very familiar with D2C brands that have um that that have celebrity investors in them um and who take yeah. on a lot of the marketing role. But what's the role of the celebrity in this model? So it's it's multifaceted. Um, I would say in the old days, celebrities were used to signing the back of checks, not the front of checks. Mm -hmm. And that model has now shifted. So what you're seeing now is with us, in almost every instance, the co-founding partner has written a check into the company. Mm -hmm. So instead of it being a licensing and endorsement structure where the artist is being paid, Often in our case, when they come up in as, as a co-founder, more often than not, they're actually investing in the company alongside us. Mm -hmm. So that's step one. They're usually an investor on the cap table. And then in addition to that, they're typically playing the role of a co-founder. So they're quite involved in the areas that they're good at. So often that is marketing and marketing strategy. Sometimes it's product and product strategy. Like it's very common that some folks are really opinionated. Like if you look at the case of JVN, Antony, and Yummers, they were hugely influential in formulations and understanding what, what was going, because they're big pet advocates and pet owners, and they have a lot to say and a lot of experimentation they've done on their own around pet food and what goes into their uh, pet's digestive system. So I think it depends on the artist and it depends on the company, but generally they're investing, they're co-founding, and they're massively involved in everything from product to marketing to distribution to everything like at retail, coming to a buyer's meeting at Target or a buyer's meeting at Petco where they're coming and meeting and talking about the business. But mm -hmm. the, the core to it is it has to be authentic. Mm -hmm. Like it's really important that this is something they care about. This is something their audience cares about. And they are great partners and voices that are reliable and trustworthy in that sector. I think that's that's super important. Well, now sort of drafting off the topic of celebrity and their their notoriety and their their visibility is then the media strategy. Um is there a particular pattern to the media strategies across these different categories? Is every one of these launches really fundamentally different in the media strategy you approach? Is it informed by the celebrity to some degree, their social footprint, their their video visibility and role? Tell us and maybe use a couple of examples like the Yummers or the or Fit 52, or, or also the one that you have now that's not even aligned to a celebrity yet. Yeah. So so I think um of course, the artist and the co-founder uh, is involved in marketing. Mm -hmm. um, but again, it goes back to the authenticity of it. And so that would be everything from certain folks are more, um, they're more followed or more interactive on a particular platform. So somebody may be more well-known on TikTok or maybe well-known on Twitter. Um, and so we'll build a marketing plan around that. And, and the marketing plan takes into account 
the medium that they communicate most on, the comfort at which they're taking certain positions. I mean, it's quite organic. It's it's not that different than what you would think about with having a CMO. Mm-hmm. You know, a CEO and a CMO to brand would probably have a lot of conversations about, okay, we know we know the demographic and the psychographic and who we're selling to. How do we feel comfortable about communicating that? And so a CMO, in many respects, has to have a whole clearing list of things that they're comfortable with before they're willing to go to market. And I think it's no different with talent. I think you have those conversations around, um, you know, the case of Anthony and Jonathan, uh, they're very, very active on Instagram, very active on um, TikTok. So those are great medium. And they really wanted their pets part of the story. So Mm -hmm. part of the whole narrative is their dogs and cats and the day-to-day, you know, it was important that you saw them as pet parents and you saw them for what they really were, which was Mm -hmm. folks that care deeply about animals. And so you'll see also in the marketing side of what Yummers does, they do a lot of work in animal welfare and Mm -hmm. uh, focusing on (laughs) placing placing, uh, animals that need homes. And so I think that all goes into it. And if you think about another example, which we launched a, um, a shower business called High, we made a decision in the early days, and this this is maybe the counterpoint to that. Mm-hmm. We loved the market. We felt like shower was this sleeper category that people were missing, mm-hmm. where there was 22 million replacement shower heads sold in the U.S. every year. Mm-hmm. And like other categories before it, mattress, luggage, they sort of went from being utilitarian things to things of desire or things of wellness. And we saw clear indication shower was moving in that category. However, in that case, when we asked the question, okay, like how do we build something that's 10x better than what else is in the market? We realized that one of the things that was wrong about showering was there was because there was no electricity in there, there was only so much you could do to make the experience unique. Mm -hmm. So we actually set up a turbine inside the shower casing, which effectively turns your shower into a teeny Hoover dam. And we use that power to to store a battery, which then speaks to Bluetooth and Wi-Fi and allows us to collect really important environmental data. Because as it turned out, as we began to build this company, it went from being, okay, the front end is health and wellness and beauty, which is super interesting, But the more we delved into it, we realized that this is a very serious environmental business because the biggest waste of water in the home is your shower by a long shot. Mm -hmm. And we figured out by collecting data, we can actually help reduce water usage while increasing your experience, prove that low flow doesn't work, Mm -hmm. and in the background, create this really sophisticated environmental system. That we felt was important to get right in market, working, testing, before we brought in a co-founder. So in that company, we have lots of investors that are uh, clients and celebrity, but we have not launched with a co-founder specifically on purpose. And we will, over time, activate more of our investors. Mm -hmm. But that was a place where we felt we needed to be in the marketing on our own for a while to make sure we understood it and we understood Mm -hmm. how we were building up the back end and there's data stuff and so... 
How much of the marketing are you doing internally and how do you organize this internally so you can amortize all of this across these very different brands? I mean, you just talk about a shower brand, the whole different technology, a whole different target um, in, in the same under the same roof as, you know, as pet treats. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious how you organize this internally. What does, is this uh, all done within Caravan? Is part of this done with CAA? Has CAA really sort of internalized the whole end agency structure now for all of this? So um, it depends on the where in the food chain of marketing you're talking about. So brand creation, mm -hmm. we work very closely with CAA Brand Studio. They have an incredible team uh, run by uh, a woman named Alison Wilson, who's just outstanding. And so they've been great partners in-house of actually saying, okay, we've we've got the sector, we've got the customer set, we think we can make it 10 times better. Mm -hmm. How do we build that brand? We like to work very closely with CA Brand Studio. We don't, it's not 100% of the time, but call it 80% of the time we're keeping that in-house. And then when you start to develop um, copy, we do quite a bit of that inside the companies directly. We will sometimes partner with outside agencies, but not that often. And then inside Caravan, we have a whole uh, muscle around paid and programmatic. So we have a great guy who leads our team mm. who focuses on programmatic and spend. And, you know, and that world is so mathematical. You have to stay on top of it daily because... The market in 2021 is totally different than the market in 22 and even more different than it was this year. So you really need, there's a real science to understanding the algorithms and how to win at that. So we have a real muscle in that inside the company. Um, and so I'd say those are the big three. And then all the organic posting and stuff that comes from a talent partner, that's really done planned together based on that voice being authentic and making sure it's, um, it's representing both the company and the individual well. But I would say brand creation, we do it mostly in-house. Um, copy, we mostly do in-house. Paid and programmatic, we tend to do in-house with some support externally. Mm -hmm. um, and then we'll use agencies to support where we feel we're weak in certain areas. And But we try to keep as much of it within us, you know, within our group as we can. You do, and you often... Oh, I was going to say, and I apologize, often there is a, a social media team or there's a brand team on the on the client side as well. Mm -hmm. okay. So let me, let's pull back a little bit from this, because you're talking about a lot of different brands coming in a lot of different areas using many, many different channels. And one of the arguments going on now, I think, in marketing generally is whether all consumers are suffering from brand fatigue. Um, and, the, you know, we, we have this sort of Regular regular output from from Havas Media telling us how little people care about their brands uh, and the, and the meaningful branding project there um, and there there is this sense that anybody who's in their Instagram feed knows that it's a brand a day um, that's that's inundating us. How do you come at this as someone who's investing in building brands? How do you think about the idea of brand fatigue, where brands belong, where they're, uh, where we're seeing overkill, uh, and maybe what a lot of brands are doing wrong when they're trying to penetrate this. Yeah, I think like any any question like this, it depends on how you look at data. So you could easily make a case that there's too many brands and there's too many products and people are overloaded. I think you could equally make a case in the data that when you look at sales numbers, that may not be true, that certain categories 
having multiple brands and multi-demographics is going to be really important. So I, I think like everything, you have to look specifically at the question and the data that supports it. And there's probably three answers hmm. that you could that you could opine out of that. My personal belief, in it, and I would say this as me, not Caravan, I think that you have moved in the early days of the internet, you moved from restricted media to media to infinite media. Mm -hmm. At the turn of kind of 2019, 2018 forward, you moved from what I would call restricted product to infinite product. Mm -hmm. So now you can pretty much find a product in any category that suits your need. And product discovery is a massive problem. Like, I think actually if, if you solve product discovery in a way that was elegant in the way Google solved information discovery, you could see very different numbers around consumption. Because I think right now that chain for product discovery is quite broken. I mean, just think about buying a washer and dryer and where you would go to get that information. Pre-internet era, Consumers Report was a fairly elegant solution to that. Restrictive, but elegant. Now there isn't an equivalent. You probably get on Google, you probably get sent to, and use mattresses as the best example. You want to buy a new mattress. You will get sent to 58 mattress blogs that are all well SEO'd, that are probably owned by Casper or probably owned by one of the mattress companies. Mm -hmm. And then you go onto YouTube and you'll look at reviews and you have no idea who these reviewers are or who's paying them. So the, the process is broken. And I think those things are correlated. So when you say there's too many brands, yes, you can make that argument in certain categories. You could also make the argument that the brands may be missing the demographic. They're not, they're too generic and not specific enough. And I think the other piece of that is product discovery augments that problem when it's not well done and it's not, it, it's not oh. solid. Yeah. And it's sort of to say that the, me the media structures that we have created so far, even digital, are not up to the need that's out there. They're not mapping no. against the need. We're not talking to people in the real places where need is experienced. And by the way, I'm sure there are about 50 AI companies that are going to tell you right now, oh, we can solve for that. <laughs> well, I, I, I do believe there's some truth to that. I, I think when you look at, so think about influence. You know, we, we are really in the influence business. It's kind of at the core of what we what makes us different than somebody else who makes companies. Mm -hmm. I think influence and product discovery are going to have a huge change over the next five years. Mm -hmm. So if you think about um, today, you're a beauty influencer and you're a beauty brand and you want to go and find the best beauty influencers and you're a consumer who's trying to figure out who are the beauty influencers that speak to you. I think what you will find is that product discovery, instead of being centralized, will be very fragmented. And you'll have AI companies that will generate AI influencers that are hyper specific. Mm -hmm. So they're they're based on language models. So you'd have a beauty influencer division, and you'd have a thousand of them, and they've got their own personas, they've got their own angles. So one may be a color cosmetic expert for uh, the African American community, or one may be a foundation expert for. Uh, the Latinx community or, or or Gen Z or whatever it might be. And those right. models are constantly learning from each other, but they're right. learning what they need to know about their specific demo. And so they're, 
looking at all the new products. They're looking what actual physical influencers are reviewing and doing, and they're absorbing that information so that when you come to them, you're not expecting that you're talking to a human, right? There's no deception about it. Right. Right. You're talking to a hyper-specific product discovery engine targeted to the exact thing you're looking for yeah. so that you can get the efficiencies of that purchase in one place. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that AI is going to make a massive difference in the way people discover product. And when you add a layer of affiliate marketing into that, then you start to see it changes dramatically. And and this, like, just to take one step back, if you look at the history of how we bought things, there's always these step changes that occur. And we're in a, you know, from a venture capital perspective, you're in a bit of a lull right now around investing in consumer facing brands. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you started with like the market, you know, like the shook and the market and selling donkeys and wheat and everyone came to one place. And then you saw the rise of kind of Main Street and then the rise of Main Street into big box and malls. And then you saw the rise of the early days of e-com, which then evolved to direct to consumer. The question is, what's next? Because mm-hmm. consumers will buy. And when you have an infinite product like that, I think it's going to be... Um, hugely tied to the discovery engines and AI will play a big part in that role. And we think about that a lot. Like I spent a lot of my time trying to f- figure that out and think through how that's going to work. Cause clearly the, the algorithms for customer acquisition now are broken. Right. Yeah. They're not up to the need at all. They're not mapping against the need. No, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And that's going to be a fascinating piece. Uh, Leonard Brody of Caravan. Thank you so much for this. This fascinating place to end. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for hitting play on MediaPost's Brand Insider Podcast. We're here each week interviewing marketing executives from large and small, legacy and emerging brands. They share their experiences navigating the challenges of commercial clutter, media distraction, and consumer disinterest. You can also subscribe to the Brand Insider newsletter for edited text editions of these Q&As. For this and all of the marketing and media news reporting MediaPost has provided the industry for two decades, head over to MediaPost.com. And if you have any thoughts, comments, or suggestions for Brand Insider, you can always reach me, Steve Smith, at steve at mediapost.com. Until next week, let's market carefully out there.